Hey, how you doing? Brian Kane with the Mental Performance Mastery Podcast. And today, my guest has an impressive resume that includes a career as an Ivy League athlete, a naval officer, a job on Wall Street, a startup founder, and much more. Following an impressive collegiate athletic career where he starred on the Yale University lacrosse team, Jonathan Falcone has gone to serve in the United States Navy, where he is currently in the role of a lieutenant. While also pursuing a graduate degree at Princeton, he's also the co-founder of the mortgage service platform Uproot. He's a proud husband and a father. He's also a writer. He's a musician. And today, Jonathan's going to open up about his story and his secrets to finding success. Lieutenant Falcone, thank you to the joining us on the podcast, man. I'm glad to have you. Brian, I'm psyched to be here, man. I mean, you and I have gone back. I mean, it's almost over a decade now. Last time when we met up at Brown, right? We were like, man, it's 12 years we've known each other. So it's just, it's awesome to have stayed in touch and it's awesome to reconnect like this. Yeah, man, I'm super excited. You know, I mean, our our, our story goes back to when you were a, a student athlete at Yale University. And then this just recently, you know, I was working with the Brown women's lacrosse team and, and you're stationed now in Newport, Rhode Island and calling in from home today. So I appreciate you taking the time to do that. And, you know, you came up to Brown and kind of shared your story. And it was so, so cool to hear you talk about the applications of mental performance, not only in your lacrosse career, but also in your career in the Navy, in your career as an entrepreneur, but also just in, in your everyday life and fitness and things like that. So to kind of get us started, why don't we start with your college career? Tell us a little bit about how you ended up at Yale University. Great. So I grew up in Flemington, New Jersey, went to Hunter and Central Regional High School, and um, I was a three-year starter there, but honestly, I wasn't getting much in terms of uh, college looks. You know, I was, I was looking at some phenomenal academic schools at the Division three level, and um, my junior summer, which is always kind of that big summer before you, you know, you hit that recruiting circuit real hard and you hope to get your offer um, by the end of that summer. But that summer, first camp I went to up at Bucknell, first day, broke my hand. And, you know, I was, it, it was terrible. I was like, this, this is it. We're, we're done. Um, you know, I have some great academic schools to go to. So I'm really psyched to, you know, pursue a degree there. And then a couple weeks later, coach Shea gave me a call and he said, Hey, came across a highlight reel of you. I think you got something going on. Um, how about you come to the bulldog camp down in New Haven? It's next Saturday. Um, and let's see what you got. And, you know, for me, I was like, and Yale's calling me. And so I said to him, I was like, hey, Coach Shea, this sounds great. Um, my hand's broken. <laughs> like, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it up there to do it. He goes, well, listen, this is Yale University calling you, right? If you want to be there, we'd love to have you, right? It's your decision. And so for the next week, my dad taped my hand up a million different ways. We, we went to CVS. We tried, I mean, everything, like an ankle brace, like tied that up one way, a wrist cast. However, we could figure it out. And, you know, my dad and I worked in the backyard until we got to a place that was comfortable. Um, went up there that Saturday, showed out. Um, and that Tuesday, Coach Shea called me up, said he would uh, love to have me at Yale University and to, to send in an application. So not, not the most typical story, um, recruiting story. It was just a three-week journey for me um, when it came to Yale. But, you know, I can't pass an opportunity like that. Yeah. And, and I think that, I mean, I didn't realize that, 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 that type of adversity. <laughs> I was you know, going to say, right I didn't out, think you knew that. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that right out of the shoot, you know, you're taping up a broken hand and going there. And it's one of those, 
the key lessons I think that people need to take is that, you know, when opportunity knocks, it may not be convenient. You may not be ready. You may not think you're ready, but answer the damn door. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Don't say no. You know, how, how much has your background in lacrosse kind of played into your development and in your philosophy about hard work, teamwork, and kind of overcoming obstacles? I mean, you know, people will say football is the ultimate team game. You probably agree with that. But, um, you know, you know for, for me, I wasn't a football player. Uh, wrestling was my primary sport before I picked up a lacrosse stick in seventh grade. So, you know, for me, lacrosse is the ultimate team sport. I, I've never had a community of guys either, either at the high school level. I mean, there's still four to five guys from my high school team that, you know, daily text messages back and forth. Mm-hmm. Right, the college guys. I mean, they're every single person in my class, my class of 2011. You know, we still keep in touch. You know, we look out for each other um, still to this day. So it was struggling as a team, which we can talk about. Um, you know, for two years we we were bottom of the barrel in the Ivy League, and coming through that struggle, you know, just re resetting how we approached the team game, how we approached practice which translated into how we approached life on a daily basis. All those things, we did that together. And we saw that, you know, you can start here, but with levels of effort that is, you know, maybe uncommon to some, but common for us, you know, we can achieve whatever our objective is. And so, you know, those guys are my brothers and it it sticks with me every single day. You know, talk to me about kind of that going from being in, in, in towards the bottom of the barrel and in the Ivy League and lacrosse. And we're not talking a long time ago now, right? We're talking about what, 2009, 10, 11 ish, right? And then you guys ascend to the top. And Yale recently in 2000, in what, 18. Eight, nine, 18, won the NCAA national championship. No scholarships. And they're the number one team in the country. And then in 2019, they lose in the final to Virginia. So you've seen Yale lacrosse from, from, go from bottom of the Ivy League to top of the world. How has that process happened? How do they do that? So like you mentioned, it was 2008 and 2009. Our record in the Ivy League was 1-11. I think in total we had six wins between those two seasons. Um, and, you know, you joined the team back in 2010, talked to us for the first time, and it was – really a shift in, you know, how are we kind of, you know, it, it kind of just felt like we were all, we wanted the same thing. We wanted to succeed. Right? Nobody joined the 28, you know, 2008, 2009 season and with the objective of not winning. Um, but it, it was, it was just like smashing back and forth and two steps forward, three back. And, you know, if I had a, in a single sentence, it's how do we work smarter, not harder. Right. Because, you know, probably the worst I've ever been in college was my freshman year. And I spent the most time practicing my freshman year. I was there 45 minutes early. I was there an hour later when I told coach Shay that he didn't believe me because it didn't show. And the reason why is because all I was doing was reinforcing bad habits over and over again. Right. It, you know, practice doesn't make perfect practice makes permanent, right? It's the same way in the Navy. When we train in the Navy, and I'm in a simulator and I'm working with my watch team. It's not, it's not just getting the reps in, it's doing the reps correctly. And if that requires us to just talk through it slowly first, right, and then eventually build that capacity to execute it correctly, and then finally we're able to do it correctly. And that's what we're going to do over and over again um, in order to make it permanent. 
So, you know, that shift from just working harder as a team to developing as individuals, taking accountability as individuals, recognizing, hey, you know, something happens, green lights, next play, right? And we're moving forward. Um, breeding that into our culture at practice every single day, you know, that's what kind of helped turn the culture around. And I'll pause there um, before I keep rambling on about it. So, so, you, so you feel like the, the mental performance techniques and skills and, and process that we put in place helped to kind of get you guys going in the right direction. I, and I think that the biggest concept of them all was, you know, be where your feet are, you, you know, be present. Um, we talked about it. Well, one of my favorite stories that you told, told us was the, the neuroscientist that at Johns Hopkins, you know, he would, he'd get to work every day. He'd sit in his car, turns his cell phone off. I think he had a watch that his wife gave him. He takes the watch off, puts that in his glove compartment. He goes into the office. He puts on his scrubs, right? And that's where he is, right? He can't do anything about any issues that might be going on at home. He can only focus on what's going on at that hospital right now. And so, you know, that's kind of the philosophy we took. You know, I'll, I'll be honest. You know, I was a goalie. Sometimes the ball would be on the other side of the field. I had a Spanish test the next day, and I was conjugating verbs in my head. I was like, I was like, okay, well, I got like five minutes before the ball comes back here. So I can probably not do like five of these verbs right now. Right? And that's why I wasn't getting effective practice. I was, I wasn't where my feet were. I was letting my head go somewhere else. And then I would come back and, and you can't do that. You need to be fully invested in the activity you're doing at the time you're doing it. And I think everybody started buying into that mentality. And I think practices got shorter, you know, it, and it, like I said, it wasn't about working hard. It was about working smarter and dedicating the time that we were there, you know, with purpose. You know, I talked talk to another Yale lacrosse player recently, Mark Lassini, who's still playing professionally. And one of the things that Mark talked about was uh, a, a, how one day can change your life. And the, the one that he mentioned was a conversation that I, it was classic. I don't even remember. And he said that we were getting ready to play. I think it was an Ivy League championship game, um, maybe at Brown. And he came up to the hotel room. I would stay with the team in the hotel and, you know, we do some team things. Sometimes guys would come up to the room for individual stuff. And he said, he came up and he's like, man, I got these final exams going on. And I got this issue with my girlfriend, the whole thing. And it was exactly that. It was like, Hey man, compartmentalize and let, let go of all those things and give yourself permission to be totally present and focused on what you can influence, what you can control. And he said that that moment changed his life because it, it gave him, it gave him a strategy to be present. And to, mm -hmm. and to think about not eating the entire elephant, but to just nibble and nibble and nibble and nibble and nibble, and eventually you get to, to eat the whole elephant. And, I, and it's amazing how something that simple, something that small can have such a profound effect, you know? And I, I think if you look at your career, right, from Yale, you, you, you play there, you're a goalie, you graduate, and you took a job on Wall Street. And I know you've mentioned that, like, kind of like your time playing lacrosse in the Ivy League you felt like you were a little bit of maybe an outsider when you were on Wall Street. On Wall Street, why was that? You know, I, I think the how hard work was defined at Wall Street was, you know, it was it was it was kind of FaceTime. It was, you know, how late can I be there? How much how much work can I find? Not necessarily that's moving the ball forward in any sense. Um, and and kind of the the one for me was there was a a disconnect between the, the companies we were helping and maybe what my, my personal mission would be. I was actually looking at 
my profile for, I was nominated for the Lowe's Class Award back in 2011, which is you know, a character leadership athletic achievement award. And I was a finalist for it. And I was reading through kind of how I answered the, those questions. And it says, you know, oh, what do you want to do in the future? Which is hilarious because I still don't know what I want to do. So I don't know how I possibly answered it a decade ago. And I said that I wanted, I wanted to get involved in social entrepreneurship. I wanted to be involved in helping companies grow that serve the social mission that we're driving for a greater good that I believed in. And, um, and, and frankly, like, I, I didn't find that um, where I was working on Wall Street. And that's not a, any type of statement to say that they're not doing that work. It's just that my personal values didn't necessarily align um, with the mission that the, the company I was working for held. So, you know, for me, it, it, it was a conflict of values. It, it was a conflict between, you know, grew up in a blue collar family. When I, I'm done at the end of the day working, right? I, I've, I've told you, I, I worked on the back of my dad's garbage truck growing up, right? I, there was something physically done at the end of the day, right? I saw, you know, whether it was the, the parking lots were cleaner, the dumpsters were emptied, you know, whatever it was, the job that we needed to do, it was done at the end of the day. But working in a cubicle for me, I didn't get, I didn't get that same sense of we got something accomplished today. I didn't feel that by finishing an Excel model or a PowerPoint presentation or, or something like that. So, you know, I, I try hard not to, the experience was phenomenal. And I'm, I'm forever grateful for the people that gave me the opportunity um, to experience Wall Street. But, but for me personally, it wasn't for me. And then in 2012, you, had, you made another life-altering decision and you joined the United States Navy. What, what made you want to serve our country? I, th- I think there's, there's, there's a couple of things. I remember the moment exactly that I, I said I was going to do it because it was always around in my head. After freshman year of college, I was going to go to the Marines Officer Candidate School. They have, a six-week, they have two, two six-week programs that you do. So I was going to go then, but I got accepted into a study abroad program at the London School of Economics, and that opportunity was too good, right, to, to go join the service. So I put it aside. Then after my sophomore year, I was going to do it again, and I had the opportunity to go work for the Rockefeller Foundation to um, help with people that are struggling with uh, drug dependencies up in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. Again, too good of an opportunity to say no to. And I had an offer from Barclays at the end of my junior year, right? Again, another opportunity too good to say no to. And so, you know, I kind of resigned to the fact that, you know, it, it just wasn't going to happen. Um, and then I remember sitting at my desk and it was the end of December in 2011. And we announced that we were removing our troops from Iraq. And I remember like, I could like still see the cover of the wall street journal and it, it was a, a Marine platoon and they had to be, they were no older than me. Right. I mean, I looked at them and like, I saw myself and, you know, I thought about how grateful I was to benefit from all the opportunities that this country has, right. To to grow up, you know, working with, with my dad's street sweeper and garbage company, right. Doing those types of tasks to, you know, having the broken hand, but still have an opportunity to show out at, at Yale, graduate from Yale, like where else could, could somebody, you know, start where I did and then get to there? And I, I thought I needed to, to double back and I, I needed to serve. Uh, and there was no way that I could look at my grandkids, you know, 50 years from now 
And when they asked me, because they're studying in school, you know, what's going on in the early 2000s, they learn about 9-11, they learn about the global war on terror. There's no way I could look at them in the eyes and told them that I sat in a cubicle on Wall Street. It just wasn't going to happen. So I walked into the recruiter's office the next day. Hmm. Tell us, what was, that, what was that conversation like when you walk into the recruiter's office and he says, Ivy League athlete, Wall Street, Wall Street working, and now you want to go serve? What was that conversation like? <laughs> he was, well, at first, right. I mean, I didn't like say what my resume was. I was just like, Hey, you know, looking to serve, looking to join all that good stuff. And he's like, listen, it's a pretty competitive applicant pool right now. Um, you know, it's a, it's a very low chance that you're going to get selected for officer candidate school. It's like, all right, like I, I understand, right. You know, this is my job right now, whatever the entrance exam is, tell me it, I'm going to study for it and I'm going to take my best shot. And then he started like unraveling the onion a little bit. And he's like, wait a second, you went to Yale? You work on Wall Street? Okay, you know, let's talk about what opportunities exist here in the, in the Navy for you. And so then we started kind of going through the catalog of, um, of jobs available, different, um, different you know, we, we call them um, designators, but, you know, different service roles that there were to see what would be the best fit for my personality and what I wanted to do. Hmm. So, and I know you've talked about that, like even, even with your Ivy league background and the success that you had had when you got in to the Navy, you still felt like somewhat of an, of an outsider. Why was that? And how did you kind of work with some of those insecurities that that, that brought? Yeah. So, you know, I, I honestly finally felt like I found the community of people that shared my values, that, that shared my work ethic, um, you know, and we're, and we're dedicated to a mission that we had that unity of mission all of us. And, you know, I was so grateful to, you know, to, to be in an environment like that, but, you know, every single time people, you know, they'd regurgitate my resume to me and, you know, they'd be like, what are you doing here, man? Like you could be doing something else. Like go make money somewhere or, you know, like, you know, get into politics. What are you doing? Oh, are you just trying to like check a box to get into politics after this? And, um, you know, I, I don't blame them. It makes sense to me. And so for me, I had to outwork everybody, right? Which fine, easy. That, that's, that's easy. Um, and so the, the surface warfare qualification usually takes about, you know, it, it takes most people 14 to 18, sometimes 24 months to get done. I got it done in 11 because I wanted everybody to know that I was serious. I, I, I wanted to be a naval officer. I wanted to be a maritime warfare expert. Um, and I wanted to prove that I, w- I was there for the right reasons to be a leader and make sure my, my sailors could execute the mission. What were some of the skills that you took from your experience in Yale lacrosse? I know we talk a lot about how you can take skills from athletics and use them in other aspects of, of life. What were some of the skills that you learned from lacrosse that you were able to bring into your time in the Navy as an officer? So unlike Mark, um, I, I might need to learn a lesson like two or three times before I, I completely internalize it, right? There's, there's a point of knowing the answer and there's a part of internalizing the answer. And so, you know, going to practice at, at Yale, I, you know, the, the chain that I, that I still wear that my, that my father and grandfather had with their medallion on it, um, I would take that off before practice to kind of put myself in that physical state. But, you know, like I said, there, there's still a gap between actually internalizing it. And it was when I got in the Navy and my, my first department head, just, just a phenomenal man, um, James Heislop, he 
I, I came to him just completely stressed out. I was like, sir, I got, you know, my sailors need me here. We got these maintenance checks going on. The captain says that there's this meeting going on. He's like, okay, which one are you going to go to? And I was like, I got to be at all of them. Well, you can't. (laughs) And, you know, that was like the first time that like, I felt like I actually internalized, oh, my my feet can, can only be in one place at a time. Right. You know, and now I, I mean, at this point, right. I can, I can have my presence in multiple places because I'm able to delegate better and, you know, empower, empower my sailors, empower my people in order to kind of carry out what I need to get done. But at the time, right, like you know, my, my brain's going a hundred miles a minute, but I finally slowed down and I recognized that I had to be present and, and that the same thing applied. And, um, you know, I, 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 t- I, another story, kind of a, sea, a little bit of a sea story about it is I would always, you know, we had, we have these camo uniforms. They, they used to be hideous. Um, there were these blue, we call them blueberries. There were blue camouflage uniforms and, um, I would wear it, you know, wake up in the morning, put on my, my camouflage uniform, head to the ship, work all day, come home in the uniform. And one day my, um, fiance at the time, now wife, she had just moved up and, you know, we just bought a house and she was doing some painting and, you know, I walk in the door, it's probably seven, seven thirty o'clock at night. And she's like, oh, honey, you know, come, come check to see the, the paint job that I did in the, in the back room. And so I was like, okay. So I go back there and, you know, I got my hands behind my back, right? Basically put her at attention and I'm looking around at them. Oh, you missed a spot here. Like, oh, well, you know, how many coats did you put on? You two coats? Probably use a third coat. And, you know, I just couldn't disconnect myself from the uniform that I was on. And I was like, Brian King got me again. Right? Like, and so at that point, you know, I started wearing, you know, just kind of civilian attire to the ship, started changing out in my uniform while I was on the ship. And then when the day was done, change out of the uniform, back in the civilian clothes, that ride home on, um, in the Jeep, 20 minutes, right? I got my music, I got a podcast on, whatever it is, and I get ready to be a husband again, right? Because like, I need to be where my feet are. And, you know, if I can just, just say one more, you know, this isn't what, what's great about these lessons is that when you internalize them and you can show kind of your own fallibility to, to others, you know, people tend to listen to them and people take hold of them. And one of my sailors, she was really struggling, keeping up with her maintenance checks, managing her portion of the division. And so, you know, we had to have a sit down and a talk about it. And, you know, the whole time we're talking, I, I, I see her fumbling with, with kind of this bracelet that she had on. And I noticed this as, as my chief was talking to her and I asked her, I said, well, what is, what is that bracelet? And she says, well, my son gave me. I'm like, okay. I was like, does, when you rub it, like, does it make you think of your son? Is it like, you know, makes you feel more comfortable? Well, what is it? She's like, yeah, you know, it's just, it's just something that, you know, kind of secures me. Um, I was like, okay. Like, I understand that it might provide some security for you, but you know, during the day when you look at it, does it also remind you of some of the challenges you have going on at home? And she said, yes. And so I said, well, how about we try this? How about when you come in in the morning, before you change into your uniform, you take that bracelet off, you put it in your rack, right? And you shut your rack because you, you can't handle the challenges that are going on at home while on board the ship, while you're handling missiles, right? While you're doing maintenance checks on, you know, missile launchers, right? I mean, this is what she's responsible for. 
you know, and if you have this, this memento on you, right. It, it, I don't mean to sound callous, but it could be hindering what you need to do here in order to be successful here in order to provide the life you want to provide for your son back at home. And so, you know, again, it comes back to just being present and being where your feet are. Well, and then even when there, when, when she was home, she may have been thinking about, did I do everything I needed to do with the missiles? Because maybe she wasn't totally present there. Right. So I think if you're bringing for anybody listening to this, if you, if you have the tendency to bring home to work or the other way work to home, you're probably doing both, whether you're aware of it or not. So being able to have, you know, strategies like you've talked about, you're changing the uniform, her with the bracelet, a mindset of being where your feet are, having strategies that allow you to get present is what this podcast is, is, is all about is strategies more than talent. It's not a talent thing to be present. It's a strategy thing. It's not a talent thing to be a successful entrepreneur. It's a strategy thing. And your strategies put into play are going to help you get to where you want to go. And, you know, I think you've given a lot of us, uh, a lot of those strategies here. Um, off the top of your head, are there others that you felt like were really important to help you maybe as a lacrosse player or when you were with the Navy on, as an officer? I think some of the, so, I mean, kind of the, the in vogue strategies right now, I, I mean, I do all of them. I, med- I meditate daily. Right. I take those 10 minutes because that's how you practice being present, right? It is one thing in the heat of the moment, right? Your emotions are running high um, to try to be physically present then. That's tough, right? That, re- that requires practice. So how do you get those reps and sets on a daily basis? And one of the best ways to do that is to meditate, right? Take those 10 minutes. Um, one, of, one of my favorite analogies for, for meditating is you're standing at a train station and that train pulls into the station. So you're, you're meditating, you're sitting there and you're trying, you're trying to focus on nothing. Um, and a thought comes in. And so you kind of have two choices in that moment. It's like, you can go, damn, I, I shouldn't have thought that. I, I, I blew it. Right? My 10 million, you know, I'm, this is a bad session. Right. And then all of a sudden you can start spiraling and you're like, man, I lost this session. Okay. No, I got to try to get it back now. And you're having this whole internal debate when you're supposed to be meditating. And so one of the best ways to think about it is when you have a thought into your, your mind or something that's bothering you or feels like you can't let go of it, it's like that train pulling into the station. If it's not your train, don't get on. Let the train go, right? And so continue to stand at that train station, right? And if a thought comes into your head, just let the train go. And, and for me, that, that analogy helps me so much in my practice so that, you know, when I, I do inevitably fail at something, I, you know, the, the one that kind of just sticks into my head um, was I was doing my anti-submarine warfare certification back in 2016, I think it was. And we were down in the Marianas Trench area and I failed the final assessment. I, I, I blew it for my team. You know, 20 guys I was responsible for, 20 guys I spent six months training, got them to an absolute elite level of performance. And then I was the one that blew it. And I'm sitting in my rack knowing that like I had to reperform the next day and I couldn't let go of it. And then I remembered the train, right? And I said, it's done. It's in the past. I, I can't do anything about failing before. The only thing I could do is take on the next challenge when it comes up. So for me right now, 
this, this train, it's waiting in the station for me and it's enticing. It is calling me on board. It is calling my name. It's got my favorite song playing, probably has some coffee and some treats, <laughs> but you know, you just got to let, let it go. And I, I think that, that for me as, as a tactic to work on being present is meditating. And then in addition to that, I journal every day. I set a five minute timer and I write on an idea and it helps me articulate my thoughts. I mean, how many times does something sound great in your head and the first time you say it out loud, it comes out nothing like you have envisioned it saying in your head. You need to practice it. And I have found one of the best ways to practice it is by journaling. So I focus on a thought um, that I had during the day and I spend five minutes writing about it. When I started, um, all I did was recount the day. I, I didn't. I didn't know what my strategy for journaling was. I just knew I needed. I needed to engage with the practice, and so all I did was you know, woke up at this time. You know, started breakfast around this time. Probably could have done this better, and then moved on to the next thing. And then eventually, I started getting my rhythm. And what I found myself enjoy writing about was ideas. And so during the day, a thought comes up. I write down a little note for myself, and then I'll spend five minutes at night. Uh, engaged on that single idea. So for, so for me, those are the kind of the two, you know, kind of in vogue tactics. I, I get it, right? A lot of people are talking about them right now. Um, but you got you to dedicate yourself to them. And if you do, I, I, I really believe you, you get some awesome results from it. Jonathan, I want to dive a little bit deeper if we can into those two practices, because I think they're two of the best in, in meditation and journaling. You know, with, with the meditation practice, I, I've not heard that train analogy, but so good. I think so many times people evaluate their meditation practice is good or bad. Is I'm terrible. I hear all the time, I'm terrible at meditation. Mm-hmm. I hate meditation. And it's simply because they just jump on the train. They don't realize that the purpose of meditation is to recognize the train and let it go. Recognize the train and let it go. Step on the train and then go, I better get off at the next stop and then let it go. So the train analogy is so good, so strong. If you would talk about kind of when you do your meditation as part of your daily routine and then kind of how. So for me, it's, it's part of my, my, my workout time. Um, and, and we can kind of get into to those habits a little bit too, because I think that's just, as, that's just as critical as anything else. I think, you know, eating the right way, working out, right? Having these strategies to, to kind of bring your, your mind, body, and spirit kind of all in alignment is, is just critical. Um, so for me, the meditation practice comes typically after I'm done working out um, when I was allowed to go to a gym, because again, uh, we're, we're in the, the current environment and then additional Navy regulations on top of that, not, not allowed to use a gym. But um, when I was going to the gym, I would go into the sauna afterwards and I would do my 10 minutes engaging in, uh, in the sauna. And it was great, too, because typically there are a million distractions in the sauna, which you would never, you would never believe. I would never bring my cell phone into a sauna. I don't know what these people are thinking, but they do. And so, you know, I, I hear music going on in the background. You know, you got, you got the two old guys coking and joking in the sauna, too. So, you know, I kind of ramped up to having an environment now with, like, additional distractions. I had to, I had to block some of those out. Um, while engaging in kind of the, those 10 minutes, but, um, you know, at nighttime, right. If you're having trouble sleeping, that's, that's one of the best times to meditate. If you know, you have trouble sleeping on a daily basis, right. Use 10 minutes at, at, right while you're laying in bed, 
right? Go through kind of like the, the physical recall, you know, identify, identify your toes, your feet, you know, your shins, your knees, call out each of those, right? And then, you know, kind of, kind of flush, flush the ideas and, you know, just become very personal with your own body, um, understanding, right. And feeling e- each part. Um, and, and also I bet you won't make it those 10 minutes. I bet you'll fall right asleep. But so, uh, for me personally though, it's, it's after I work out, um, that's when I like to do my, my 10 minutes of meditation. And so right now it's happening in my garage. Is it typically um, in the morning? Are you a morning workout guy or do you do, you do it at random times? So right now, um, I usually take the afternoon shift. My wife and I just got a dog and he has a bit of a separation anxiety issue. Um, so typically my wife and I would go to the gym together, uh, around five 15, but right now I've, uh, I've yielded the five fifteen time slot to her. And so I'll usually get it in around four o'clock, but, um, like this morning, for instance, um, the school schedule was a little different. Um, my training schedule was a little bit different for the next couple of weeks. All right. So I got, I hit the garage up at, I think I was in there around six o'clock this morning. And so that, yes, I, I enjoy my morning workouts much more so than the afternoon because I want to know I own that time. Uh, and I think that's a big thing when you get in the afternoon, you know, whether it's a work day or something, you have all these competing priorities. Um, the, the morning for me, I have found that it's, that's the time I can own right? people aren't going to impede upon that because for the most part, they're not awake. And so I enjoy getting a workout in, in the morning. Do you feel like that also gives you kind of a better energy and focus and positivity for the day too, that there's like a secondary benefit that plays into your mental game throughout the day that you don't get if you don't work out in the morning? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, it's, it's better than three cups of coffee and I love my coffee. Um, and so, you know, when my wife comes home in the morning, you know, we also have like a deal with each other. If you get the morning workout. So typically Tuesdays is my morning workout day. Um, because you know, I, I also play the piano. I have some, I have my, my startup business and Tuesdays is usually like just packed out at night. And so I need my, my morning workout, but my wife and I kind of have a good deal. It's like, you know, recognize that the other person didn't have a morning workout. So our energy levels are at significantly different places, you know, when you walk back through that door. Um, you know, so that's just that, you know, that's working out that's working out the partnership and you know, what works for us as a family. That's awesome. Let's shift into the, uh, one more thing with meditation. Do you use, how do you do the meditation? Do you use calm? Do you use headspace or is it just you focusing with your breath? Like tell us about some of of how you do it. Cause I think that's one of the biggest challenges for people when they want to get started with meditation is they're like, well, what do I do? And I often recommend the calm app or the headspace app is really good introduction to people doing meditation. Or, you know, when we were together at Yale, one of the things we would do is the six to eight breath where you would literally inhale for six, hold for two, and then exhale for eight. And just repeat as part of that process. But how specifically get into the detail of the meditation? How do you do it? So for, for me, it's the calm app. Um, Tamara's my girl. I love her. Um, she, she's got the best voice on, on the calm app. Sorry, LeBron. But, um, I, I, I go all in on anything Tamara produces on the calm app. And then, um, in, in seriousness, the other thing for me, there's a book called the uh, Buddha is the way, right? I'm, I'm not selling you on any, on anything religious or anything like that, but it's, it's a guy's journey through meditation. And he talks about, you know, Literally, like the first time he does it, he goes into a meditation retreat, talks about his experience through that. And it, anybody that's struggling with meditation, 
you read this book and this guy's talking to you. He knows exactly where you're at. He just is able to pinpoint exactly where you're struggling and how you feel about it. And then once you realize it's like, oh, this guy got through it, right? He trusted the process, right? I can trust the process too. And so that's why I think it's a super powerful book for anybody that's looking to engage in meditation. Yeah, I just, I just read a book. Uh, two other ones to add to that would be the book Breathe by, mm. uh, I, think I think it's James Nestor. And another one, um, oh God, it's escaping me right now. Oxygen Advantage by Patrick McKeown is a good one. He talks about taping your mouth when you sleep, something that I've actually started doing. I learned from uh, one of my friends out at, he's a police officer, lieutenant at, uh, captain now at UC Berkeley. And he talked about taping your mouth when you sleep. And huh. I don't know if I could do that. And next, thing I, next thing I know, two days later in the mail, I get a package of, of tape in the mail. And it's like, the, it's like a very thin, you know, uh, tape that you'd get, like uh, if you put a bandaid on, like it's a tape you would use like to wrap the bandaid. It's, it's much thinner than a, um, than athletic trainer tape. Right. And mm-hmm. I, I got a beard. Right. So I put it on the night, the first night, middle of the night, I go to rip it off, lose half of my lips and half of my beard, you know, but now I, I, I will literally notice based off of, I've tried the whoop band. I've tried the aura ring. I now have the Garmin Phoenix watch and it measures all those measure sleep and it measures respiration rate and it measures heart rate. And when I, uh, have the tape on my mouth, I notice a significant increase in REM sleep and a significant increase in recovery score for the next day. So um, there might be a, a piece of a roll of tape in the mail coming your way. I, I, you know, I actually want to, I want to like, sit on that for a second, because I think one of the other things that a misconception is, is like, Oh, if I'm working hard, then, you know, I gotta, you know, I can only sleep for like four hours a night or like five hours a night or something like that. And I'm, I, I have a lot going on, right. You know, by, by most standards, I still get seven to eight hours of sleep a night. Absolutely. There is, I do not sacrifice my sleep. Right. I, 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 when I talk about being present, what being present allows you to do is buy back minutes in your day. Instead of a task taking you two hours to do, all of a sudden it takes you an hour and a half or an hour or even 45 minutes. And so when I buy back that time, I'm able to, I'm able to go to sleep at night. I'm able to go to bed at 9, 30, 10 o'clock, right? And then wake up and engage in, in my workout and in my routine. Um, but I think that's just so important. And it's just, I think it's a horrible misconception about people that work hard that the, that they only, the way in which they work hard means that they're giving up sleep. Well, and you see, you know, you see Jocko Willink waking up at four 30 in the morning and he's posting his watch every day. Right. And, but he doesn't, no one ever says what time does he go to bed? You know, and he's probably not going to bed at midnight if he's getting up at four 30 in the morning, you know? So I, I think that's, that's one of the key things that people get confused on you know, with, by motivational speakers, the people saying, oh, you got to stay up later, wake up earlier, you got to grind. But it's like, well, yeah, man, you put your nose to the grindstone sooner or later, you got no nose and I'm all for working hard, (laughs) but you, but you have to buy back minutes and you have to be intentional about where your time goes. And one of the things that I remember you said, it stuck out at Brown, as I was looking at my notes from that talk that you did before the call was you said, assign each minute a task. Mm. Would you, would you go a little bit deeper on that for a second? Yeah. And so that's, you know, that has to do with like organizing, kind of organizing your day, right? For, for me, it, t- it typically starts on Sundays uh, and I'll plan out the week. And so, you know, whether my, um, my last captain, my last commanding officer used to say that if you ever hit snooze on your alarm clock, it's the worst thing you could do because it means you failed at your first task of the day. 
right? And nobody wants to start their day with a failure. And so, you know, on Sunday, being intentional and setting, hey, I'm waking up at this time on Monday, this time on Tuesday, this time on Wednesday. For some people, it's easier, hey, I'm waking up at 5 a.m. every single day, right? Good for them. I'm a little more variable with it, right? Wednesdays, it, my workout is, it's a 30-minute run and some calisthenics. So for me, I take an extra half an hour of sleep, right? And I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm, com- I'm comfortable with taking an extra 30 minutes of sleep on Wednesdays. And, but what I do is I make sure I'm, I'm still intentional about it. I plan it out on Sunday. These aren't, this isn't a decision that's made because I'm comfortable under the, the comforter, right? At that minute, right? That's not what's happening. I, I decided I was going to wake up a little bit or I was going to wake up a little bit later that day. And then, no, I have to be at my training facility at a certain time, right? And I leave at a certain time. Um, and so during that time, that is what I'm focused on. I'm not running out to my car to check emails about this other thing that I have going on, right? I am intentional about studying if I'm there to study. I'm there If I am learning from a lecturer, I am taking it all that and I am going to be present. And so I think what naturally flows you know, what naturally flows from all this, and that's the, that's the best part about being present, right? Is that it's, it's, it's so foundational to everything else. Mm-hmm. If you're present, you gain more time in your day. If you're present, you're able to assign every single minute a task. If you're present, the, you increase your capacity to improve not only yourself, but people around you. Um, and so, you know, when it, when it comes down to it's just like, Hey, you want one takeaway, just be where your feet are. And, you know, I, I think that's kind of where it all filters from, even, you know, the assigning every single minute a task. Yeah. You know, and it's, and we say be where your feet are and people say, I hear people say that as they're on their cell phone, scrolling through their Twitter feed, you know, and, and being present is easy to say hard to do, but you've given us strategies to do. And it's, it, I should say, it's hard to do if you don't have a strategy. Anything is hard to do if you don't have a strategy. If I say, I'm going to drive from Phoenix, Arizona to Newport, Rhode Island, but I don't have a GPS, I don't look at signs, I, I may make it. Most likely, I'm going to end up in California. I'm going to go the wrong direction. You know, so you've, you've got to have a map. And you've given people a map with meditation practice in the calm app or the 628 breath. You've given them a map with assigning each minute a task where you sit down on Sunday. You've given them a map of aiming, let's say, schedule eight hours of sleep. Me personally, my, my target times are into bed at 8.30, up at 5.30. It's typically within 30 minutes, plus or minus of either side. It might be in at eight, up at five. It might be in at nine, up at six. It's somewhere in that ballpark, usually within 30 minutes on either side of 8.30 and 5.30. Um, you also talked about journaling. Let's circle back to that. And you said you take one idea and you'll write for five minutes. Would you, would you kind of talk about a recent idea? And is, are, you, are you physically writing? Are you typing? Go a little bit deeper into that, if you would, Jonathan. Um, so, so I physically write. Um, for, for me, I, I, lo- I love putting pen to paper. Right? It's got to be pen, too. And honestly, I hold a pen really weird, so it's got to be a specific pen. Right? So <laughs> there, is, there is not a lot of variability in what I do. I use the same notebook. I use the same pen. Right? And it is, that is the routine. Um, and okay, so a recent idea that I had, you know, it, it's kind of tough. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of a recent idea that, that might be more applicable here. But as you know, um, kind of national security and, and foreign affairs is, is kind of really where I like to engage and that, that I do write on. Um, 
and, you know, actually just to, to circle back real quick, you know, last time we were at Brown, you know, I had one of the, one of the women's players asked me, they're like, you know, I understand. I hear what you're saying, but when do you say no? And I was like, Oh, well, you know, a recent example that I said no was I got asked to um, write a national security paper on, you know, how China implements their monetary policy. Right. I'm not going to go into detail. Don't worry. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I told the editor, I was like, listen, I just got too much on my plate. I can't do it. And I felt so guilty <laughs> at the, at the end of that, that I emailed that editor the next day and I told him I'm on board, like, let's go. Um, and so I, it's actually being published either this week or next week. I, I got like a, a I got like kind of my final read through of it last week, um, worked with the editor through, and I'm grateful that the guy was, you know, willing to take me on and help me get my ideas out, but it all started with journaling. Um, and I think one of the hardest things that, that stops people from writing more is that they think that they need to say, say something profound and that they need to say something that nobody else has thought before. Um, or they're just scared of what somebody's reaction might be if they, they find it. And, you know, I had a, a, a great professor tell me that when you write, the objective is to contribute to a conversation and create a conversation. If you're writing with the objective of ending the conversation, then you're, you're not writing the right way. And I think it works just, it works for journaling the same well, the same way. If you think you're journaling for a specific end, right, that you're going to get something personally out of it, um, just at the end of, of accomplishing that task, right, that's not what's going to happen, right, it's, it's going to be a long process, it's going to be something you have to trust that, hey, I'm going to get benefits from this over time, and I might not see it, like, it might not hit me in the face that I'm benefiting from it, but just trust the fact that it is, yeah, I love that concept of contribute and continue the conversation. Don't end it. And that's, uh, that might be my big takeaway from, from today. Although I have about four pages of notes here, but I think that's, that, that's a big one because a lot of times I think when you, when you, when you're process-based thinking, you're like, okay, well the process gets us to an outcome, but it sounds like with the journal there, there is the, the outcome is continually growing and continually moving forward, not evaluating. Like I've personally struggled with journaling because I don't know what to write about, you know? And I think recently some of the reading I've done in a book uh, called, called Gratitude Works, mm. another book called The Joy of Movement by Kelly McGonigal, and another book called Tiny Habits by BJ Fogg, who's a professor at Stanford. Each one of those books, you know, um, Robert Emmons, who, who did Gratitude Works, he talks about the importance of you can increase your happiness by 25% by simply reflecting for five minutes once a week on what you're grateful for. And he said, you know, think about, um, just if you just write those down, right? So I keep a way of life. It's a habit tracker. And in my way of life now, I have a journal where I write down like three things I'm grateful for every day. Second thing is, is in the book, Tiny Habits by BJ Fogg, he writes about the importance of celebration and how many times you know, as, as competitors, as people who, who have a lot going on, we finish one task and we're immediately on to the next. And I think of Bill Belichick saying after they won the Super Bowl, his quote was in all actuality, we're six weeks behind. What we just did was great, but we're six weeks behind the next season. And I don't, I'm not sure that's the right mentality 
in the way of taking the, you know, th- this book references, taking the time to celebrate those, those wins, even small wins, like a warm cup of coffee or the fact that you got out of bed on time or the fact that you did your exercise or the fact that we're recording this podcast right now is a great way to continue to, to, to build confidence and to build momentum and build productivity by stacking those wins. And he says, he says, uh, soon in the coming years, it was my favorite quote from the book, basically to summarize says in the coming years, the importance of celebration will be right next to mindfulness and gratitude in mm-hmm. terms of how it helps us to be more positive. So the other, and then the movement piece with Kelly McGonigal, just the importance of movement and what that does and how, if you move every day and it doesn't have to be a CrossFit, doesn't have to be the Murph, although it is Monday, it doesn't have to be an Ironman. Uh, it just has to be movement and that movement for where you are with where you're at. And she said, 20 minutes of movement every day is like taking a little bit of Ritalin and a little bit of Prozac. If you don't move, it's like taking a depressant. So those are three fundamental things I think of, of gratitude, movement, and celebration that are things that I'm going to start journaling on. And hopefully our listeners have kind of that, the, a launching point of where they can get started, but continue. If, if I can add just one, one, one more thing, right. You know, we talk about this, we're, we're discussing this, right? Like it's all on us. It's not, right? You know, if you have a partner at home, right? Get them involved, right? Have accountability between each other. And, you know, and the reason why it, this came up in my head is because you talk about celebrating accomplishments. I'm horrible at that. I, I am absolutely terrible at being grateful. But my wife does an absolutely phenomenal job of telling me to pause, right? Take account of what I have in my life and right to celebrate the small achievements and so to recognize that this journey that we're talking about and these different processes this doesn't happen in a vacuum and it's it's not up to you to solve by yourself get you get yourself you know it, it whether it's your partner at home it's a, it's a friend at work or whoever it is right be a part of a team and a community that's going to help push you forward let's go on that path for a minute. Talk about accountability partners. And I know in the Navy, especially in the Navy SEAL community, the concept of swim buddies is so important that when they go out, they're always going out with somebody. And you've been around team your whole life, whether it was at Yale lacrosse or then now with the Navy. Talk about the power of those accountability partners. Of course. Um, I mean, on my, on my last ship, I, I mean, I, it, the guy comes to mind uh, immediately, uh, and, you know, my buddy, uh, Lieutenant Aaron Van Driesch, you know, we pushed each other as hard as we possibly could. He was responsible for air warfare on board the ship. I was responsible for anti-submarine warfare on board the ship. And, you know, those, those two, I mean, they, they can interact, but, you know, for the most part, we exist in, in separate parts of the ship, but, you know, my team had to be better than his team and his team had to be better than my team. Right. And, you know, and then as, as we're pushing each other, right, we'll pause, we'll take out the instruction together and learn together. Right. And we'll make each other better. Right. It actually like, stop. This isn't, this wasn't some type of like passive aggressive, like male egos trying to like one up each other. This was no legitimately, we both need to be at the top of our game because our whole ship demands it. Right. And, you know, recognizing that when you're, you know, when you kind of think about what does positive competition look like? You know, on a team, when I talked to Yale, uh, when I talked to the lacrosse team back in November, I said, the most important people on this team might be the freshmen, right? Seniors, juniors, you've been to the national championship game twice. You won it once. Um, You have some biases in your mind on how things are supposed to look. um, And, you know, you can fall into that trap of, we've always done it this way. 
listen up, this is the way we're going to, to go forward. But having the humility to, to say like to a new voice, right? How can you make me better, right? How can we together get better? And maybe the answer is, is it's like, no, this is, this is the way we've been doing it. This is the culture we built and right. Like I, I know this, but at least taking a second, recognizing that you need to be humble enough that somebody else, maybe junior to you has that answer. And I think that's something that, you know, what's great in a, in the goal, in our goalie community was that there, there was me as the starter and we had two backups and yeah, we competed hard against each other, but it wasn't a malicious, um, wanting, you don't want to get ahead because the other person failed. If you got ahead, it's because you earned it and you outworked somebody for it. And I think that's a, that's like the great mentality about the Navy is that, you know, even when we compete as ships against one another, right? Yeah. I want to, I want to have the best ship. There, there's no question about that. The commanding officer, you know, he or she wants to have the best ship, but at the end of the day, did we make everybody better? Right. If we were better, well, guess what? I got more work to do because now I got to go on board the other ship. Right. And I got to learn from them what they might do better than me. Right. And I'm going to impart some of my knowledge on them as well. And, and I think that's what healthy competition looks like. And that's how we can use kind of that, that buddy concept and those accountability partner concept um, in a constructive way. And as they say, iron sharpens iron and high water raises all boats. Speaking about high water raising, raising all boats and giving back and a life of service. Tell us about your entrepreneurial side and about up, Uproot. What's the vision for that? How did it get started? So Uproot is a means of, um, of helping active duty service, um, service members become homeowners. Uh, active duty service members currently have a home ownership rate that's half of the civilian population. Home ownership is one of the leading indicators of the ability to build wealth. So what we've done is we've built a platform that allows military families to work together to build wealth while they're serving. I think one of the best ways to think about it is um, think of it as like a, like a basketball game. So currently the way it works is you have one family that's going up against five defenders. You have the, the buyer's real estate agent. He's charging you 3%. The seller's real estate agent. He's selling you 3%. The bank's taking 2% for closing costs. Um, the military's moving you every two to three years. So you're not building any equity in the home. And then finally, just the way that mortgages are structured, you're almost paying interest. Those, those first two years that you're a homeowner, you're almost paying entirely interest. So you got those five defenders against you and you're just one homeowner, right? Trying to score, trying to get a basket, right? What we're trying to do is create a team. We're trying to get five military families, whatever it is, right? To work together, to pass the mortgage from one family to the next so that we can work together and over 15 years, sharing the benefits of built equity, built appreciation, lower the transaction costs that occur in a real estate deal. And that's the way we're trying to help active duty service members build wealth. That's awesome. And for people that want more information, uh, if they're you know active service members listening to this, where can they get, get more information about Uproot? Yeah, you can go on our website, www.uprooothomes.com. We're on LinkedIn. We're on Facebook. Um, I'm even on Reddit answering questions, um, you know, trying to help service members out that have questions about the VA loan. You're not going to find Uproot on Reddit because I'm not trying to, I'm just trying to be a helpful voice uh, there. 
but you ask questions about the VA loan and how to use it. And I'm going to answer it for you. Awesome. A couple other questions here, you know, with everything that you've got going on, I mean, you're, you're, are you still finishing the masters at Princeton? Is that done yet? No, I graduated last June, um, okay. completed my master's degree there. So undergrad from Yale, master's from Princeton. You're now a professor at the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. Is that right? Uh, so I've moved on from that uh, associate faculty role. I was helping out in the humanitarian response program, traveling to MIT, Harvard, Brown, um, and teaching policy students there how the military contributes to uh, humanitarian disaster relief and other humanitarian issues. So with everything that you have going on in your life, how do, you know, I think you've, I think you've answered this, but let's hit it again. Cause it's so important with everything that you have going on. Cause the people that are listening to this, everyone's going to have a lot going on and be busy. How do you stay present and focus on the moment and not everything on your to-do list? I mean, a, a huge part of it is my wife. Um, you know, she, she helps keep me grounded more than anything else. And that's where I think having, you know, relationships and, you know, with, you know, your partner, but also friends, mentors, sponsors, all, all that good stuff. Um, they're the people that kind of help keep you focused and, you know, not, not that there's pressure to, you know, you don't want to let them down type of thing, but when somebody takes an interest in you and, and cares about you, you care about them as well. And when that, when that means, you know, that requires effort on your part, um, I, th I think you're more willing to engage and you're willing to make sacrifices, whatever those might be, in order to, you know, is keep that community going. To, to, you know, I think other things you mentioned also that help to stay present are going to be the, the journaling, the meditation, the daily schedule, the morning workouts. I mean, just, just so many golden nuggets there in terms of what people can actually take and apply to their life. But let's talk about pressure for a second. Because there's been many different times in your career where you've had to deal with extremely high pressure situations and deal with them with poise. Tell me about the anti-submarine warfare symposium back in 2017. Yeah, and you know, this is this is where I, I kind of get at what's the difference between a mentor and a sponsor? Um, a mentor is is somebody, you know, senior to you, looks out for you, helps you along the path, helps you mature and grow. A sponsor is, is somebody senior to you, but they treat you like a peer and they, and they put you in situations that might be uncomfortable for you, right? They, they you know, like the mama bird kicks you over the, the side of the cliff and tells you to fly. Um, and, and that's what, what this, this moment was to me. Um, so we had, we had just completed some anti-submarine um, objectives out in the Western Pacific and once a year, Destroyer Squadron 15 out in Yokosuka, Japan, they hold an anti-submarine warfare symposium. And it's where everybody gets together and they talk about the tactics used, um, just lessons learned, et cetera. And it's a, it's a pretty well-attended event, you know, from senior leadership down to junior sailors who are your sonar operators. And, you know, there were three ships that were selected to present. I was fortunate that our ship was selected to present Two ships went ahead of me, and in both cases, the commanding officer went up there, presented what the ship did, you know, hoo-yah, and all the great stuff that, you know, happened on board their ship. And my captain kind of leans over to me, and he's like, Falcone, I'm going to introduce you, and then you got it. And at the time, I was thinking to myself, I was like, man, this, 
this guy's just trying to wiggle out of work. Right? He doesn't want to get up in front of everybody and, uh, you know, and talk about this. But, you know, I was fired up about it because, I, you know, I, I actually I love my job and I, I was so proud of what my team did. And I knew that if I had the opportunity to speak in front of everybody, what I was going to be able to do was call out my individual sailors um, and kind of give them high marks and make sure everybody knew who they were, um, make sure that they were the ones that kind of got the credit for it. And so again, I got up there, I think it was like a 45 minute hour long presentation. And I mean, it, it went phenomenal, right? And, you know, it really kind of um, locked in my, my place as, you know, consider somewhat of an expert in, in the warfare area. Um, and just that I ran a respected team um, out in the Western Pacific. But at, at the time, you know, I didn't recognize it that my captain, what he was, what he was doing there was, you know, ensuring that I, I was, he was elevating me, right? And that, that's special. There's not many opportunities in life where you are elevated, um, put in front of leadership to, to show what you're made of. Because a lot of people, you know, senior people like that, they want to make themselves look good. They want, they want to show everybody what, what their ship did. And for him to give up his opportunity to brag kind of um, in front of, you know, the, the senior officers present and give that opportunity to me is, is something I'm, I'm extremely grateful for. And at the time, like public speaking, not my thing. Right? Like I can talk in front of my 20 sailors and, you know, whatever. Right? I mean, I was, I was sweating. There was, it's a camouflage uniform, but there were, there were some good pit stains going on. And um, so it was, just, it was just one of those, it was just one of those moments in life um, that I'm just extremely appreciative for to be elevated like that. You know, and then the following year, right in 2018, you had another transfer transformative experience when you were asked by a professor to present a paper to an audience of former diplomats, foreign policy experts, and leaders. Tell, tell our listeners the lesson that you learned that day and, and how that's been so important in your life. So this is the professor that I, I kind of um, gave a nod to earlier um, in, in our chat. You know, he was he was the one that said, you know, I said to him, so the, the topic of the paper was, you know, Bitcoin was hot at the moment. And so I wrote a I wrote a paper on whether or not cryptocurrencies were in accordance with Sharia law or not. Right. Um, and I was kind of looking at it from a national security um, perspective, asking, OK, you know, what's the potential uses of cryptocurrency? Um, for ISIS at the time, other terrorist organizations. What does this mean? Is this a means of funding their operations, et cetera? And so I wanted to dive in with, you know, is this even kind of congruent or works with, with the Islamic faith? And, you know, I'm, I'm obviously not Islamic. And, and so I said to the professor, I was like, hey, I got this cool idea for a paper, but I don't know if I can write it. Like, I've never studied like, this type of cryptocurrency before. I know nothing about Islamic law. And that's when he said what I, what I mentioned earlier is that your job in writing a paper like this is to contribute to a conversation, right? It's not to have the final word on anything. It's to help inspire additional conversation of, about this. And so I was like, okay. So I go and I do the work. I probably, I interviewed so many people for it from, you know, religious scholars um, I even got to, to interview the head of the SEC um, to get kind of like his thoughts on like cryptocurrencies and legal compliance and, and things of that nature. Conducted a bunch of interviews, read a, a ton of books, anything I could get my hands on. 
and, you know, still just shaking to turn that in to this, you know, very respected professor. Um, and I was like, I, I don't know if, I don't know if this is worth anything. Right. I, I think I did the work, but I don't know. I don't know if it's anything good. And he's, and he asked me, he's like, well, did you do the work? I'm like, yeah, I did the work. I'm like, All right. Well, did you, how many books did you read? I told him, I was like, like 25, 30 books. He's like, okay. How many interviews did you do? I don't know. I did like 15 interviews. So, sounds like you did the work, right? Give me the damn paper. All right. And he read the paper and, you know, it was part, partly his personality too. He's like, John, John, just, you're coming to Rome. All right. I got people to introduce you to. I was like, well, all right. Well, now we really need to, we need to pump the brakes here for a second. And he's like, no, I know the exact people you, you need to, you know, present this to. And um, there was like a small group of us. He put together like a panel, um, like a small audience of people for us to kind of present our ideas to. And um, again, another one of those sponsor type situations where, you know, we were in Rome uh, and he even got us to get like three feet from the Pope, which was crazy. Uh, you know, growing up Catholic my whole life. So I don't know, why did I meet the Pope? And I got three feet from the Pope with this guy. Right? And so, um, you know, just an amazing human being. But again, like the lesson from that was, it was, it was like, you know, if you did the work and if you did the research, right? You followed a pro you followed the process. Yeah. Own it, right? You deserve it. You deserve to own it. And, you know, if, I don't know if I, if I didn't have that experience, I don't know if I would have been able to, to, to start Uproot. I don't know if I would have had the confidence to identify a problem, you know, do the research and, and think that I had anything to contribute to, to bring a solution, you know, to, into the world. And so like, I, I credit as, as funny as that sounds that that research paper and and presenting that paper to such a, an elite audience um, has given me the confidence. Like, yeah, I'm absolutely. I can tackle that. Not an issue. Jonathan, let's talk a little bit more about confidence. Where, where do you feel like confidence comes from? Whether it was on the battle, whether it's on the battlefield or it's on a ship, whether it's on the athletic field, whether it's with uproot, whether it's with anything in your life. I know you've done some fitness competitions as well. I think uh, I'm, I'm training up for it. COVID COVID knocked me. Um, a quick so my trainer he's the man right and so i sent him a picture of my of my gym and you know i sent you the picture too right and it, it's like trx it's the home gym it, in the garage yeah that's beautiful. right milk jugs filled with sand or it's sand bags and an adidas gym bag on a pulley system um uh, and so i you know i i he's got a jeremiah and i was like hey jeremiah man like this is my setup i need a workout Right. And so, you know, he came out and, and pumped out a workout, pumped out a nutrition program for me. And, um, you know, I was rolling with that, but there's only, there's only so much you can do in terms of building muscle, right. And, uh, in, in that home gym. So competition's coming in the fall and I plan on winning that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Where, where does confidence come from for you? Um, I think, I think it, it does come from, it comes from two places. One is, is experience, right? Obviously the, the more, the more you've actually done something before, you know, you, you kind of get a little bit of swagger from that. Um, but the other part of it is if you haven't done it before, you got to make up that experience. So how do you do that? Right. You, you got to mentally envision it. You got to make it happen before you go into it. Uh, just last week I had my uh, final practical to, to kind of like get to my next level um, in the Navy. And you know, to be frank, I don't, I don't think we get en enough reps and sets in. And so I was, I was a little nervous about it. I was like, well, how can I, 
what can I do about this? And so, you know, took a whiteboard, sketched out what a scenario would look like, possibly. And I walked through all the different warfare areas and I envisioned what would this look like on my screen? What would I hear in my headset from my different watch standers um, if a missile is incoming, if a submarine pops up, if some hostile surface craft pop up, right? And mentally, vividly imagined what that looked like, ran through my procedures, right? And then executed it all in my head, right? And that's experience now, right? Experience doesn't have to be from physically doing it, right? Walked into the practical, crushed it, right? It it wasn't even, there wasn't a doubt in my mind that I was going to crush it because I'd already seen it. I I knew exactly what was going to happen. Um, And obviously I didn't know exactly what was going to happen. It was completely different than what I envisioned it to be. Um, but that's like one of the beautiful things about planning as much as like people want to say, Oh, planning sucks. Like it never goes to plan. Like, why do we even waste our time with this? It's because functionally what planning does is gives you a medium through which you can mentally envision a scenario, practice it and walk through it. So even if that doesn't go to plan, everything goes sideways you have confidence in that situation and that you know how to react because you've already done it, even if it was different. So it sounds like you're using visualization, mental imagery, probably like you did back in lacrosse when you would visualize stopping shots coming at you from different areas. Now you're just taking that same skill of mental imagery or visualization and applying it in a different context. Absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, you used to record it for me, right? Because I was, I was one of the special cases on the, on the team. I got, I got personal, um, I got personal audio messages from Brian Kane. And so, you know, I remember, I like, I, I remember, so the Georgetown game, my, my senior year, you know, you, you were like number 11 gets the ball at the top, at the top of the arc. You know, he goes, he goes down the right alley or no, one fake, two fake, he lets it go on the third, right? And this was, I mean, literally what you're doing, we're just reading our scouting report, right? But like you placed me in the goal and then like I saw number 11 at, like at the, at the top of the box and I saw him driving down the alley and, you know, I remember, and then, and then it happened. That did happen the next day. Like pretty much exactly your spoken word happened step for step, right? In the game. I was like, oh, this definitely did this before. So this is easy, but yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, the, from those recordings to today, I mean, I did it with my teams. That's why walkthroughs are so important um, in the military or any other context. You know, I, I would say for any business meeting that you go in or investor call, right? You don't go into those things cold, right? You, with your team, you impersonate what the investor is going to ask you. You have a list of 25 questions that you're most likely to encounter and you practice those questions, right? All of this Right, is to say that like visualization is, is the same no matter what walk of life you're in or however you're applying it. And you and you feel like for visualization, it, you know, it's just another mental skill that you've talked about in a cross application from being an entrepreneur startup to you know in the in the navy to when you were playing college lacrosse. You feel like visualization is a skill that everyone should be using to help them prepare to go out to give them more confidence, regardless of what they're doing. And I even think people are doing it more than they probably give themselves credit for. But then the thing is you take it to the next level when you start intentionally doing it, right? This is the difference when I was saying earlier between being knowledgeable about something and internalizing it, right? Like when you plan or you just have like a meeting before the meeting, right? And and going over things, you're visualizing, 
right? But take that up, take that up a notch, right? Start, start actually being intentional about how you're visualizing and how you're approaching these things. And, and I, I, I think people will really kick it into another gear. Love that. Jonathan, last question for you. If you could take the skull cap of all the people listening to this, let's say young listeners, high school, college athletes, if you could remove the skull cap and plant one seed that would help them accomplish big goals and to be high achievers in their life, but they might be dealing with some insecurities themselves, what would that seed be to help them to deal with those insecurities and also become a high achiever and achieve those big goals? What would be that seed you'd plant that would germinate? I I think, you know, when you first started asking the question, I wanted to say being present, that's the, right. Um, but you know, th- th- that's not it, right. It, it, don't say no for somebody else, right. No matter what your insecurities are, do not ever say no for somebody else. There is, and no is not that bad. I, I get told no all the time, right. If, if you're married, you've been told no a lot, right. It's okay. Right. I have a startup, right. I pitch investors all the time. I'm told no a lot. I go to pitch competitions. I lose a lot, right? And it, it's recognizing that you're better than you're better than whatever your worst failure is. I mean, it's it is nothing more than that. Um, everybody fails, right? And honestly, I'd say probably the people who are the most successful probably fail the most because they take the most shots. And so for me, that that one thing that I would say is get comfortable with being uncomfortable right? Being told no, right? And don't let somebody else say it for you. Because you, you'd be shocked how many people want to help. Um, and when you say no to them, you're not only taking something away from yourself, you're taking it away from them too, right? Because we all get a lot of enjoyment in life helping others. I know I, I volunteer with a program called Service to Schools, and you know, I'm helping enlisted um, service members you know, apply to their dream colleges. I, I got had three guys so far. One's at Princeton. One's now uh, starting school at Yale. Right, and the other one's at Amherst. Awesome. Right, and if they didn't reach out for help or they didn't ask for help, and they just assumed that nobody would help them, they might not be there. Right, and so never say no for somebody else. Yeah, that's one of the big things. You know, one of my mentors, Dr. Rob Gilbert, with Success Hotline. Right, one of the things he says all the time is, if you don't ask the answer is always no. And don't say no to yourself. You know, it's like, if you want to go to Yale, apply to Yale, you know, and he always says he's a professor at Montclair state and he'll have students that come in and they'll say, well, where'd you want to go to college? Oh, I wanted to go to Howard university or I wanted to go to Harvard university. Well, how'd you end up at Montclair state? Well, it's closer. Well, did you apply to Howard or Harvard? No. So they said no to themselves. Exactly. Don't write, don't write your own rejection letter. Make sure that if you don't ask, the answer is always no. Jonathan, are you available on social media if people want to follow your whereabouts? Are you, I don't know if you're out there and people can engage with you on Instagram or Twitter. Is there any way for our listeners to stay and follow your your progress and your career? Yeah, I would say probably Twitter and LinkedIn are the the two best places for me. Um, Twitter, it's at JDFalc1, Falcone, but instead of the the O-N-E, just the number one. Um, uh, and then, uh, LinkedIn as well, John Falcone, right. You can, I post a bunch of stuff on there about Uproot, um, my writing that, that gets published and, and all that good stuff, but always, Oh, just send me a message. Always willing to engage with everybody. Awesome. Jonathan, man, I can't thank you enough for, for your service to our country and, and for the, taking the time to join us here on the mental performance mastery podcast. 
so much audio gold that came out of today. I'm super excited to go back through my notes and kind of summarize and then also get that journal started, man. Thanks for jumping on the call today. I really appreciate you being with us. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Brian Kane Mental Performance Podcast on the Ironclad Content Network. If you liked the show, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Brian Kane Peak. I'll see you next time.